Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And before we begin today, I want to remind you there is a website associated with this particular podcast called wealthformula.com. Go check that out. Uh, you can sign up for our various lists, uh, including the Investor Club, which is for our accredited investors. If you uh, if you are an accredited investor, you definitely want to sign up for that. Lots of different types of uh, alternative assets uh, coming through this year for those who are interested in, including uh, you know the usual stuff like real estate. But we're doing some interesting stuff. You know, airplanes buying you know, jumbo jets and, and triple net leasing them out to major airlines. We're doing uh, mergers and acquisitions. We're doing, uh, yeah, we're doing all sorts of stuff. And obviously the ATM fund is rocking and rolling. And uh, that one you've been hearing about because that one is called a Reg D 506 C, which generally can be, um, can be released to the public, but you must be an accredited investor, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes on behind the veil of investor club that's only available or you know in terms of even telling you about if you're part of it so go ahead and sign up for that if you so desire now what is an accredited investor this is a reminder I make two hundred thousand dollars per year at least for two years with a reasonable expectation of continuing to do so or three hundred thousand dollars if that's a if you're filing jointly and also and or i should say a net worth of a million dollars out of your personal residence. That is an accredited investor. You don't need to, you know, get certified or something like that. Uh, you know, it's it's not a test. You know, it makes it sound like accredited. It means you have to do something. You either are or not, like you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. So anyway, let's talk about today's uh, show with the presidential election coming up um, in the fall and all of this stuff sort of kind of getting... Uh, kind of uh, heated up here just a little bit because it looks like it's going to be a rematch uh, between uh, uh, these guys from last time, which yeah, I tell you, it's kind of boring. I think it's kind of boring. Whoever you're rooting for, whatever, you have to admit the whole thing's kind of boring. It's just like the same same old uh, old guys again. and It'd be kind of fun to see some new, new blood in there one way or another. But that, uh, speaking of old presidents, though, I got to tell you, uh, my favorite president of all time, he was a pretty old guy, too, was a guy by the name of Ronald Reagan. And I remember uh, Ronald Reagan once saying, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, was he said that those were the uh, most dangerous words in the English language. Now, I generally tend to agree with a Gipper, who uh, I have fond memories of going back to, 
I remember in 1980, it was the presidential election and I was in kindergarten and I remember, I remember watching it. It's crazy. Like, uh, I mean, it was like what, six or something like that. And I remember uh, Jimmy Carter getting beat and, and then I, my dad was like on a work trip and I remember he was like out of the country and back in those days, like, you know, word didn't get out on the internet very quickly, but I remember telling him that Reagan was new president and he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And then, uh, and my mom got on the phone. Yeah, I think he's right. I don't know. He's the one who's been watching TV all day. So anyway, kind of funny. Reagan was, uh, an opponent of big government and, um, you know, the thing about it is that I got to say that there's really no, there's no party now that really is truly against big government. Both sides have become big government advocates, which is too bad, frankly. But, and the reason for that is when the government gets too big, it gets dangerous. And that's what Reagan was talking about. It gets sloppy. It costs too much. It's like a monster. And like all monsters, it's got to eat. And it does this through this taxation. That's how it eats, right? Now, if I'm, if that monster was lean, mean, and efficient, it wouldn't be quite as scary, right? You might think that monster might be doing me some good or something. But this one is not that. This one is fat and keeps growing. You see, government begets more government, which creates more cost and inefficiency. And that's just the truth. It just is. Now, what's a better answer? I'm, you know... I, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I don't pretend I have an answer, but what I think ideally you would do if you could, which you can't, or you could, but it will never happen, is that you would break the whole thing apart and put it back together in a way that makes sense. I mean, even with taxation, right? I mean, maybe some kind of low flat tax makes sense. I don't know. Or maybe just having a, you know, uh, a, a less complicated tax code. Maybe that would make sense and that would make it, you know, so that people's behavior was, you know, uh, easier to control. I mean, I, if you have high paid professionals or, you know, wealthy people, whatever, and they know that pretty much guaranteed they're going to have to pay 15, 20%, you know, I think generally people would be okay with that. But what ends up happening is that people who can, and rightfully so, will go and, and try to uh, like entrepreneurs, you know, hear about Jeff Bezos and all that, the, they will do everything they can to uh to zero out their taxes and then net net i mean the rest of the, the country a lot of the country's paying more some people aren't paying anything but i don't know maybe a flat tax makes sense just throwing it out there okay instead you know we've got this big inefficient thing it's hard to control and why do we tax anyway we tax because there's supposed to be benefits to people right you got to fund the government but what are you funding the government for so that they can ultimately do services for the country right so that people can have benefits they can have social security they can have medicare they can have you know all of the the other things that 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 the the taxes are supposed to pay for but when you realize uh, what the real story is uh, you realize that uh, that actually the benefits that we get from those taxes are often taxed themselves, and that makes you wonder what the point was in the first place. Anyway, there's probably, again, a better way to do it, maybe some credits or things like that. And uh, when you take a step back and see, you know, and see what's going on, it's just pure insanity. And that's, uh, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to make you crazy because this week's guest on Wealth Formula podcast is an expert in this whole 
area and is going to expose all that gory detail for you when we come back from these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Judge Glock. He's the uh, Director of Research and a Senior Fellow at uh, the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor at City Journal. He writes about intersection of economics, finance, and housing with a, pers- with a uh, perspective that's informed by his work in economic history. His work has been featured in National Affairs, Tax Notes, the Journal of American History, NPR, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, among other places. He's the author of The Dead Pledge, The Origins of the Mortgage Market and Federal Bailouts, 1913 to 1939, published in 2021 by Columbia University Press. Welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast, Judge. Well, thank you so much for having me. So you, you've got, obviously, a significant background. We can learn a lot from you. But the first thing I'd like to kind of you know, talk a little bit about is, you know, your view that the government uses a tax code to, quote, you know, rob Peter to pay Peter. Can you tell us what that means? Tell us what's going on, the big picture there. Yeah, so I, I wrote a recent report on this for the Manhattan Institute and also a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed describing some of that research. And uh, the basic story is that in America, we obviously have a massive welfare state, expansively defined, meaning uh, we have spent a lot of time taking from A and giving to B. That includes everything from unemployment insurance, straight cash welfare, food stamps to Social Security and Medicare. Um, in 2022, that totaled about $4 trillion uh, spent on what's known as these transfer payments. Uh, the problem in America today, though, is that those transfer payments go to so many different people and go up and down the entire income scale so that a lot of families, households, and individuals that are receiving money from the government are some sort of specific individual services are also paying a lot of taxes. Yeah, They're paying most obviously uh, for higher income groups, income taxes, but even for low income workers, they're paying FICA taxes. They're 15.3% total on Social Security and uh, Medicare and so forth. It's coming out of every paycheck. So I was trying to calculate how much of the American welfare state uh, involves uh, giving services or money back to households that already paid that much in taxes in that same year. So let's say a household paid $4,000 in taxes and they received $2,000 in food stamps from the government. Uh, I would see that as as a waste in that you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Peter. You're, right. you're taking the money uh, from uh, those households and you're giving them uh, a certain kind of government benefit. And I calculated that was about 20% of all that we spend on, on welfare in the United States. Wouldn't that depend... Um, I'm curious, I guess, like, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that number was coming from, you know, higher tax brackets in the sense that the whole concept ultimately is some level of uh, redistribution 
So like, you know, somebody who is in the higher tax bracket, I would think that they would probably get back less than they put in. But I guess what you're saying is that even in those lower tax brackets where they are requiring uh, food stamps and that kind of thing, they're still getting less than they put in. Is that accurate? Well, a lot of them are. Uh, and I, I both tried to look at how much overall each kind of group or, or income groups are getting back from the government and how much they're paying in taxes and the amount of overlap between the two. So those lower income groups where I looked at households that were in poverty, they usually only paid back about 3% of their benefits to the government in taxes. They weren't paying a lot of taxes right. to the government. So most of their benefits were, were just going into the bank. Uh, I'll add, and we can talk about this later, I didn't include things like sales taxes that obviously the sure. people are paying others, but it was small that for, if you looked at groups like uh, families that weren't in poverty or households that weren't in poverty and didn't receive social security, so they weren't elderly most likely, uh, then you're looking about, they paid back uh, about 45% of all the benefits they received. And yes, they were usually paying back quite a bit more than uh, they got from the government. But some people have discussed just like, yeah, who gets more or less? And I think that's, then they pay in. And that's an important question. But to my mind, it's also an important question, just how much overlap is there? How much are you paying and then getting back uh, when that's a, just a total wash? And that's what I was mainly looking for. Right. So how are 20% of government benefits returned to the government via taxes? Yes. So yeah, think again of this family or, or household that... Uh, they're paying FICA taxes on the their work. They're 15.3% uh, payroll taxes. They're paying perhaps income taxes, and they're paying perhaps state uh, income taxes as well. And let's say they pay 7,000 taxes in a year. And let's say that family or household also gets $2,000 in food stamps and uh, $1,000 in heating subsidies, just to take an example that uh, the government gives out. So again, you're, they're paying a lot of taxes, but they're also getting a bunch of benefits. And then in my report, I'm looking at that, for that previous example, would be about $3,000 in overlap. Mm -hmm. they, paid, they got at least that amount of benefits and they paid more than that amount of benefits in taxes. Uh, and so that's that 20% I'm looking at. The, all those households that are paying a lot of taxes, yet they're getting a lot of benefits from the government. And how much of our entire welfare sort of system is doing that. It's just kind of circulating the money back and forth from the same families that already paid paid that to the to the government through taxes. And I found it was a lot. Yeah. If we're looking at twenty percent, we're talking about eight hundred billion dollars a year more than no. we spent on defense. Uh, so this is really So uh, where's the inefficiency coming from? So it just comes from the fact that kind of in an ideal redistribution system. If we're, we're having a system that's really designed to support those who don't have enough, you're taking from those who do have a lot of extra resources yeah. maybe at different times in their life when they're a little better off or mm -hmm. they're younger. You're giving to those who don't have that many resources, right. that either because of disability or injury or they're aged and they need some support. Um, but if you have a system that is redistributing income way, way up the income ladder. And we're doing that now. We're giving Medicaid and health insurance subsidies to people multiple multiples of the uh, of above the federal poverty line. 
uh, food stamps way above, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, Medicare and other things for people very well off. And yet you're also taxing those groups. Right. You're going to get that overlap. Uh, the larger that state is, if it's redistributing, supposedly for the benefit of a lot of these people, uh, but it's also taxing those people, uh, you're getting this huge inefficiency. And I go in a little bit why this is obviously much worse than just letting people keep their money in the first place. I would think like in later in life, maybe some of this would balance out when somebody stops working and starts getting more Social Security benefits and Medicaid and that sort of thing. Is that does that not really kind of sort of even even this out? Well, it does. So Social Security is one of the, the few things, the benefits in the government that is explicitly taxed. So right. when you get Social Security governments, if you get have enough outside income, you have to pay yeah. taxes on yeah, yeah. Social Security. Um, so that's continuing into right, right. later in your life. Yeah, and I've talked sense. to people since I've, I've written on this. Uh, people talk about being over 65 and the rigmarole they have to go through uh, to try to minimize their Social Security taxes, which, again, is amazing. You have the government redistributing all this money to people and then making this complicated process to try to take it back again from them. So you call this sort of the tax and return uh, scheme. Is that right? Um, so I sometimes refer to it as netting taxes and the taxes net out uh, the benefits are just robbing Peter to pay Peter right. because that's what's happening. So what are the origins of this tax and return scheme like who created it and you know what was the intention yeah it's it's just kind of gradually risen over the past 80 years as government transfers and support has kept moving further and further up the the income ladder and government taxes have kept moving further and further down the income ladder and as some of my colleagues over at the manhattan institute have been pointing out there's only so many very wealthy people that could hypothetically fund the government. So if you're going to have a government that right now, you know, including state and local and federal altogether is taking, you know, more than one out of every three dollars in the economy, you can't just have a, a few rich people fund that. You have to fund taxes on the broad middle class. Yeah. Uh, but if the, the that broad middle class is paying a lot of taxes and also getting uh, let's say uh, education subsidies uh, uh, to send their kids to, to college, uh, you know, student loan uh, deferments or uh, subsidies or so forth. Uh, you, you get this ironic situation that the government is doing this, this uh, taking and giving uh, from the same groups. And yeah, that's, you know, food stamps have used to be just kind of for people on welfare at the very bottom. They kept moving up who could receive them. Medicaid, of course, used to pretty much for single mothers, again, largely on welfare. And now you can get Medicaid if you have, uh, you're well above the federal poverty line. Uh, now, health insurance subsidies under the Biden administration, if you're looking at the Obamacare markets, you can make, you know, about $100,000 a year and still be getting quote unquote subsidies from the government. But obviously those same Households are paying tons of taxes, so they shouldn't necessarily see this as a great benefit. Right. They're just getting a portion of what they pay back. Um, so as an economist, obviously, you're looking at how various policy affects behavior. How does tax and, I guess, this tax and return idea impact behavior? It has a negative effect on, on kind of both sides, both the taxing and the, the returning side of it. So... The taxing side is obvious. If you have an income tax, that's a disincentive 
a discouragement for you to earn more. Right. The more you earn, the more you get taxed. And so there's plenty of evidence that people work less when they have higher income taxes, of course. They look or are less interested in getting better jobs. Obviously, there's a plain bureaucratic cost to filling out extra taxes, to paying this to the government, to monitoring what you pay, et cetera. Um, uh, and there's also costs, though, on the benefits side. So there's plain administrative costs for the government, uh, say, distribute who earns food stamps, deciding who gets it. There's a guy in D.C. in an office and a bureaucracy that has to say, I'm, you know, A gets it and B doesn't. Right. Uh, there's you know, simple stuff as, you know, mailing out the EBT cards and distributing those. Uh, a lot of calculations, about 15 cents on the dollar for some of these programs, uh, uh, just the administrative federal costs. Uh, but. There's cost to families for applying to that and, and staying on the things. And then finally, I, I also mentioned there's uh, a lot of these programs, unfortunately, have a marriage penalty in them. And that for especially for lower income households, you can lose a lot of benefits yeah. uh, if you get married because it can push you out of those, some of those income groups. And so, again, it's there's always been a discussion, the problems with that uh, in terms of the welfare policy. But it looks doubly strange if you think about for a lot of these families, they're just getting back money that they already earned and paid in taxes. So right. they're getting penalized for this stuff that they uh, they already paid for, which is is doubly absurd. What would be, I mean, if, if you had to sort of recreate this program or recreate this with, uh, you know, maintaining people's benefits, uh, the intended benefits, like what what could potentially fix this if you thought about like, you know, how you would implement policy in a more efficient way. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, the simplest ones uh, that I've been advocating is the easiest thing to do right off the bat is just reduce taxes and benefits together. Right. So let's say for those families right now that got food stamps uh, or, you know, education subsidies or heat subsidies and are also paying taxes, just X out both of those. Yeah. Cut their taxes by the same amount they got in benefits, and that saves everybody a lot of headache yeah. uh, and doesn't cost a single family a dime. Uh, so in that way, you could shrink the government significantly uh, without any redistribution of funds uh, whatsoever. And that just, again, makes everybody's life easier. Now, the other thing is just more broadly, think about our tax and transfer system in a combined way. So uh, we should try to minimize taxes on those who really are in poverty and need help, are disabled, temporarily unemployed, what have you, uh, and focus all our benefits just on that group. And since we should try to distinguish who we're taxing, which is the uh -huh. uh, those who really have enough and are in a good place in their life, and those are getting benefits, which should really be reserved for those people who are in real trouble and poverty. Not totally we can do that. That's never totally easy, especially things with Social Security. But insofar as we can kind of separate those two systems, we can, without costing anybody a dime, we can make everybody's life a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Let's shift gears a little bit. You have this book, the Dead Pledge, the Origins of the Mortgage Market and Federal Bailouts from 1913 to 1939. Tell us a little bit about the, um, you know, the story there. Yeah, so I, I've been interested in mortgage policy for a while, and this is obviously something the federal government spends a lot of time 
subsidizing, uh, whether that be through these kind of what they're called government sponsored enterprises like yeah. Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, which are private companies usually, but wink, wink, the government will always support them. Yeah. Uh, currently nationalized by the government. Um, and uh, obviously, I was particularly interested in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Sure. Uh, we had a big mortgage crash and a lot of bailouts. Uh, based on these failed mortgages. So that book basically goes back into history and said, when did this begin? This is a very strange thing for the government to to be involved in. And I tried to show that kind of the the original sin or the origination of a lot of this was were these things called the federal land banks. Uh, they're actually still around in a slightly different form. They were mortgage banks similar to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac who were supposed to give mortgages to to farmers originally. Uh-huh. And it was very similar in that they were private companies, but wink, wink, uh, the government's going to back them up if uh, they collapse. And not surprisingly, they endured a, a lot of politicization. They gave out loans like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac did based on political heft. They uh, uh, were very inefficient. Uh, they uh, wasted a lot of money. And then when they collapsed in the Great Depression, uh, the government bailed them out uh, at the time about a hundred plus million dollars, which was uh, a lot of money back then. Sure. And surprisingly, after this whole system came a cropper and fell down on its face, the government said, "That's a great model. Let's take that over to the rest of the the urban mortgage market and make that the basis for the Federal Housing Administration, Federal Home Loan Banks, Fannie Mae, all of these other systems we now have to support mortgages." And what I try to show is. The government has tried to do this time and again, kind of in an off-balance sheet manner, where they're pretending there's no cost in the short term. These systems uh, end up failing. The government has to bail them out, and uh, then we're back. And then the government doubles down on the subsidies, and we're back on the same train again. Mm-hmm. We saw this depression, but in the 1980s and the savings and loan crisis, and then again after the 2008 uh, financial crisis. Well, and and. Um I'm just curious uh, from the, uh, you know, from the economist's perspective, looking at where we are with um, interest rates having gone up as high as they did. Do you feel like there are, you know, there are some potential, um, you know, some issues? Certainly we've seen them in uh, real estate, um, in in commercial real estate, um, in multifamily real estate. I mean, you've got... uh, You've got a huge uh, burden of of floating debt out there, and a lot of it's protected by rate cap insurance. Um, Do you see, do you foresee potential bailouts coming? Probably nothing huge in the near term here, but there is the danger of something like we saw in the 1970s and 80s, uh, which is uh, you had interest rates and inflation jack up very quickly. Uh, and you had a lot of banks and, at the time, SNL savings and loans holding a lot of these lower interest mortgages where they weren't having, uh, they weren't receiving uh, enough income on right. what else they could do. And uh, this was a big cause of the, the savings and loan crisis right. in the 80s, which cost the government uh, 100 plus billion dollars. Sounds and, similar to the Silicon Valley Bank uh, crisis. Right. Well, exactly. And the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you know, a lot of their the reason they failed was long term treasuries, which right. again, is somewhat ironic, was supposed to be about the safest investment on yep. earth. Yep. Uh, but mortgages were also an issue there. They had these long term mortgages mm-hmm. that were subject to interest rate risk, 
meaning that if the in- other interest rates went up and they were just getting you know three percent on a mortgage and they were funding that with deposits that were that had to cost more than that, they're in big trouble. And uh, I joked uh, at the time that this is kind of the last possible risk the government hasn't guaranteed on mortgages, and that. The government through Federal Housing Administration, Fannie Mae, guarantees that you can have a place to sell them at all times. It guarantees that the credit uh, is okay, basically, because the government will step in if the credit goes bad. And yet, maybe at some point the government now decides to step in, will we'll insulate banks from even interest rate risk. And yeah. Actually that. Well, it was, I guess, yeah, it was kind of, uh, it's something that hasn't really been... <laughs> hasn't been tested uh, in in several decades, right? So yeah, exactly. So, um, so when you, I guess when when writing your book, what are some of the, I guess some of the conclusions, the big conclusions to take away from this? Uh, like for example, why did the government get involved in the first place? And ultimately, you know, is that is that a net net? Is that a, a negative thing, or was that a is that a good thing to prevent systemic? Uh, systemic collapse. I mean, I'm just curious, kind of like your overall take on this. Yeah, so one of the reasons the government got involved is America just had a very poor banking system going back centuries, frankly. Uh, America for decades, uh, really until amazingly, until the 1980s and 90s, used to have a lot of states with unit banks, as they were known. In, In Illinois, for instance, you could really only... If you were a bank, you could have one branch. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and that made banks subject to a lot of risk in that if you're a single bank in a rural community and the local farms have a bad year or the plant closes down, you're done for. You can't, the bank could have diversified. Uh, and still, instead of solving this problem back historically and making a more functional banking system, the government kept layering more and more support for these small banks and, uh, and most importantly, the support for these small banks making mortgages. Uh, they said, hey, you're a small bank in rural Wisconsin. The government will take that mortgage off your hands and we'll deal with the risk and you can just get the cash from, from lending it out and originating it and so forth. Uh, so, And this is a lot of where our banking troubles come from, all the way to the, the FDIC and, um, uh, again, the SNL crisis in the 80s. So... Ideally, we're getting better in some ways about fixing the, those banking systems, allowing more diversification, but we're definitely not where some other advanced countries like Canada are in terms of, surprisingly, they allow a more free market banking system. Uh, but the, the danger that I point out is that a lot of these government programs were done off balance sheet, which should always make us very suspicious, meaning that Instead of some congressman getting up and voting his hand and saying, I'm uh, promising to give X million or billion dollars to support mortgages, Congress can just raise its hand and say, hey, let's guarantee the bonds on these mortgages. Or even worse, implicitly guarantee uh, uh, these semi-government corporations. That doesn't cost those congressmen a second, uh, a dollar in that near term. They can pretend to their constituents is costless. I'm just giving you free credit. Right. And the government's throwing its innumerable credit powers on top of your little mortgage, and everyone's happy. Uh, the problem is that sooner or later, someone has to pay the piper. And that's what happens time and again. The government offers these credit guarantees, credit supports, 
financial bass stops, and then sooner or later we all end up paying for them. And so we yeah. should all be very, very suspicious of uh, the government offering this free sort of financial support uh, with the understanding that sooner or later we're all going to have to pay for it. What's the practical solution for that? It just seems like the government is so ingrained and we have created this culture, you know, uh, financial culture of feeling like, you know, that the mortgage system is ultimately very secure because it's backed by the government. And I mean, how do you back out of that? Well, it's very tough. And so obviously yeah. the, the, the best thing is, is at first to stop digging, which yeah. unfortunately the government is not doing. Uh, after the financial crisis, um, groups like Fannie Mae actually ended up taking more of the mortgage market. So yeah. the policy, again, things go wrong, and then the government even doubles down on its uh, uh, its past commitments. Uh, so stop making it worse and giving more. But then gradually there were some attempts uh, in the last two administrations to limit Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's power to make sure that there was they didn't continue to eat up all of the, the mortgage market. Try to get that private market back into that show that some other countries like Denmark, they have a more efficient, more private market system. Um, but the other thing is is to make sure Congress uh, recognizes the cost of these things. When yeah. Congress votes for a loan program or a credit guarantee program, uh, that doesn't look like it adds to the budget. There's some rules about how the Congress is supposed to calculate these things, and they really need to be strengthened. You need right. to show that hey, voting for a credit guarantee is, uh, or a support of mortgage is just the same as voting money for food stamps or tanks. That should right. be part of your budget too. Right. Interesting stuff. Uh, Judge Glock, uh, again, the author of The Dead Pledge, The Origins of the Mortgage Market and Federal Bailouts, 1913 to 1939. Uh, and I assume that's available pretty much anywhere you want to buy a book. So thank you so much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. I know we've been running a uh, commercial, but uh, check out the WFVelocity.com. Uh, there's a new webinar on there now. Uh, there's a new uh, informational webinar on there about the ATM fund that we have. And if you've been involved with this, now I've, I've been involved with ATMs for quite some time now, and it's been a very reliable uh, source of uh, income and investment. For me, but this new informational webinar on there is really, really good. Uh, it gives you a, a full, the full breadth of what this business is. It's not really that simple. It's a fairly complicated business with a lot of, with a lot of moving parts, and it makes it, it it's really interesting. So go check that out. I recorded that with uh, Daryl Heller just a week ago, and uh, it's much, much, I think, I feel like it's a lot more informative than the original one we had on there. So again, check it out, wfvelocity.com. 
And that's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.